0: Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Calves, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Happy New Year. I hope you had some meaningful time while you're away, um, having, I don't know, time with family or friends, my wife and I, it, to finish off the, the season, we've just had a, a barrage of weddings within the space of 24 hours, two in different cities. It was a very, very busy, busy season. I had the privilege, the joy, the honor to look after um, one wedding between our dear friends, Amy and Steve. I was so tired, I have other friends, Amy and Sam, and I got up the front to call everyone to attention and I said, we're gathered here today to celebrate the wedding of Amy and Sam. Uh, It wasn't a good start. Uh, There were two Sams involved in the wedding too, so it was all a bit confusing. That was a a wonderful occasion though. Uh, It happened also to be the 10-year anniversary of my wife and I, uh, as I'm standing there speaking and preaching at my friend's wedding. It was It was what a way to spend your anniversary, Uh, in all seriousness, to be able to see the joy between two people. You know, they came up the aisle and there I am standing in between them. They were just gushing at each other, like doing these ones. I could not believe what was happening. It was so sweet to see. Now, why do you get married? There's a question to start off the new year. Like, why isn't it just enough to say that you love somebody in your heart and you don't need a piece of paper? Well, let me put it this way. We have all sorts of relationships in life. In society today, we have, for example, consumer relationships, which are all about cost and benefit. Like when you go to a supermarket, you might be friendly to the assistant, but at the end of the day, you're really there because you want something and you give them money for that. So it's ultimately all about getting something that you want or need at an acceptable cost. That's a consumer relationship. And when a person says, I love you in my heart, I don't need a piece of paper to prove it. In effect, they're saying that my feelings are what matter in keeping this relationship together. There's no, I need nothing beyond how I feel inside. Uh, there is nothing beyond my emotions and my thoughts about you that I need to base my relationship on. In effect, it's a kind of consumer relationship because what happens when those thoughts or those feelings for the other person go? When you're not getting the thoughts that you want or the feelings that you want anymore, Right? Well, that's when relationships tend to get really tricky and people will often walk off and go elsewhere to find what it is they're looking for. But when the Bible talks about marriage, it talks about not a consumer relationship, but a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is not a transaction based on what you give and get. It's a binding commitment based on trust and concern for the good of the relationship itself, irrespective of how you're feeling. And what happens in a public wedding ceremony uh, and the signing of a piece of paper is that a couple shares their vows and they exchange rings with one another as a way of entering in to a covenant with one another, so that when richer becomes poorer, they have something more than riches. When better becomes worse, they have something more than worse. And when health gives way to sickness, as it certainly has for my friend Steve, who just had a kidney transplant a couple of months ago, you have something more than sickness. They have a binding covenant which commits them to one another and recommits them again and again and again. Well, today as we kick off the new year at CCN, we've decided to take a break from our tour through the book of Acts, a series we're calling To the Ends of the Earth, to basically do a little mini-series here to set the tone for our year. A mini-series based on the Psalms, uh, the Shepherd Psalms. We're calling it Cross, Crook and Crown. Psalm 22 being the the Psalm of the Cross. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, so the crook. And then Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill to the throne room of God. The fourth Psalm we're going to have is Psalm 103 that is going to be not essentially related to the shepherd's arms, but it's a way of reflecting on what we've just looked at, giving praise to God. So this is our map for the next month here at Calvary. The good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, praise for the shepherd of our souls. What does that have to do with marriage? Well, at the end of the day, there are different um, metaphors that the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God. One of them is indeed marriage. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Uh, We also have others like God is our father, and he is the potter, we are the clay, and so on and so forth. Another metaphor is shepherding. But regardless of the metaphor in question, ultimately at bottom, the nature of the relationship that humanity has with God is covenantal. It's binding irrespective of what we are doing. It's all binding on what God has done and done. Has committed and entrusted himself to do. So this idea of covenant is going to be underneath everything that we're looking at over this next month. So cross, crook, crown—that's our mini-series. And today we're going to be looking at the cross, uh, the Psalm of the Cross, at how Jesus is the Good Shepherd because He suffered and died to save us from the penalty of sin. That's the big idea today, because when you open up Psalm 22, and if you have a Bible there, please open it up. We're going to be walking through this. When you open up Psalm 22, you read there in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, assume that you've never read the Psalms before. All you're familiar with are the Gospels. Right away, this sounds familiar. This is exactly what Jesus said when he hung on the cross. And for the Jews at the time who heard Jesus say this, this would have also sounded familiar to them as well. Because back then they didn't have chapter and verses, they didn't even have titles for their books. So if you were referencing something from the Hebrew Old Testament, how did you do it? Well, you quoted the first couple of lines. So in effect, when Jesus says here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, he's saying to everyone who heard him, this song of David that you call the 22nd Psalm, is happening right now because he said it in the first person. In other words, it is impossible to understand Psalm 22 without understanding that it is all about Jesus. But here's where it gets interesting. If you have uh, Psalm 22 there, look at the superscript written above. To the choir master according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. David wrote these words in the first person. So on the one hand, Psalm 22 is all about Jesus, but on the other, taken by itself, Psalm 22 is all about King David and his experiences. But King David lived over a thousand years before Jesus, at a time that was hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians. So what do we do with this? Is Psalm 22 about David or is it about Jesus? The answer, I think, is both. But how we pass that out is not as straightforward as you might think. Like this idea of covenant that is behind everything we're going to be talking about this next month, so is this idea of prophecy. Prophecy. I don't think we can properly understand Psalm 22 unless we understand that it's all about what Jesus experienced on the cross. But I also think we can't properly understand what Jesus experienced on the cross unless or until we understand what David says in Psalm 22. Right, so there's two directions here. First, we're going to be looking forward from Psalm 22 to the cross to try and make sense of the cross from Psalm 22. And then second today, and this is our outline, we're going to turn around and we're going to come back and look from the cross back to Psalm 22. Make sense? Okay. Hopefully this will be one way that we can try and get our arms around this psalm because it's a big psalm. So first of all, let's, let's go looking from Psalm 22 to the cross. For the sake of time, to try and get your arms around it, I just want to highlight three contrasts as I see them. The first contrast is a contrast between dereliction and celebration. Look here at the beginning of Psalm 22. David begins with a God-forsaken cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Now, there are 150 Psalms in the Bible, and they can be divided into five distinct books, each with different emphases. Psalm 22, 23, and 24, they all happen to occur in Book 1. And Book 1 is basically all about God, David reflected on God's promises to him that one day he will be king and also his reflections on later sufferings that he had at the hand of his predecessor Saul and his son Absalom. So this cry of dereliction, this cry of anguish, this cry of agony is not alien to David's life. He went through some stuff, okay? So there is a sense in which this is reflective of his experiences. He did go through seasons, But check this out. Jump with me to the last two verses here in Psalm 22. Verses 30 to 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You see a contrast here with how the psalm begins and how it ends? The first two verses begin with a cry of dereliction. The last two verses end with a pronouncement of a celebration. And that then begs the question, what's happened? What's happened between the beginning and the end of this psalm to bring about such a radical change? Great question. Hold on to it. Let's keep on reading. Contrast number two, Israel and all the nations. David begins by saying that he's forsaken by God. And we go on to read here verse three, yet you are holy, Enthroned on the praise of praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David immediately follows up his cry of dereliction with a confession about God's holiness and his trustworthiness, which tells us that even though David believes himself forsaken by God, he doesn't blame God to the contrary, he seems to be suggesting here that because God is holy, that's the very reason why he's been forsaken. I mean, look at what he says next, verse 6 to 8. But I, says David, I am a worm. God is holy. By contrast, David says, I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's as though David is saying, he's been cast away from the presence of the Lord because he's unworthy. Ultimately, I think that's the reason for the cry of dereliction here. Why have you forsaken me, Lord? It's a rhetorical question, because I'm unworthy. Verses 9 to 11, yet you, look at the contrast again, he just goes back, yet you, Lord, you are he who took me from my mother's womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Now, this is where it gets even more interesting. David sees he's forsaken, right? Right? Because God is holy and he is not. But despite being forsaken by God, David still cries out to him. From his mother's womb, he has depended on the Lord. And now, in this forsaken state, he's still depending on the Lord. I'm reminded here of Peter in John 6, where some of the followers of Jesus leave Jesus. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, what are you going to go to? And Peter pipes up and what does he say? Where else will we go? You alone have words of eternal life. David is basically saying the same thing. Yes, Lord, I am forsaken by you, but where else am I going to go? I'm in anguish. To whom else will I cry? There is no one else but you. And if we're tempted to say, that's great, David, seems a bit like vain hope to me, like wishful thinking, Let's not miss the basis of David's appeal here to the Lord. Back there in verses 4 to 5, look at that again. In you, our fathers trusted. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. David isn't just appealing from his own strength within. He is appealing to the covenant promises God made with the nation Israel through their prophets, beginning in Genesis 12, being reapplied in 13, 15, 17 again, spoken out as it was laid out to Abraham and subsequent patriarchs. That is the basis of his appeal here, which means he's turning it back around onto God. You said that you would be faithful to me. That covenant, by the way, it's so important i want to recommend everyone here who goes home for this week and tries to study up on the covenants get in touch with me i'll happily give you some reading uh, the covenants really help you understand the unfolding nature of the bible and the covenant cut with abraham from which we get this other covenant called the new covenant in jeremiah 32 that that is a it's called a unilateral a one way unconditional covenant. That's why when you read the the way it's unpacked there in Genesis 12 and so on, you see these phrases from the Lord, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's all on him. David's appealing to that. And here's the contrast I want to point out, the second contrast. Look here, jump with me now to verse 27 to 29. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Just like the contrast between dereliction and celebration at the beginning and the end of Psalm 22. Do you see the contrast here between national Israel at the beginning of Psalm 22 and all the nations at the end? Cry of dereliction, pronouncement of celebration, God's blessing to Israel, God's blessing now extended to all the nations. Again, the question is, what has happened between the beginning and the end to bring about this change? And just let's time out here for a second. Those of you who have been with us for the last year, studying through the book of Acts, what's the title of our series? To the Ends of the Earth. That comes from Acts 1.8, right? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, right to the end of the earth. Look at Psalm 22.27. All the ends of the earth. What's happened between the beginning and the end here, between Israel and all the nations? If you've been here for the last year at Calvary, you should know the answer to that question. But let's work, let's work from where we are here in Psalm 22 to there, right? Let's not just assume that you've been with us for the last year. Let's keep on reading and see how that comes about. Third and final contrast, death to deliverance, to life. Verse 12 to 18. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Here David is talking about his enemies, and he describes them with vicious, beastly-like traits. And we're going to come back to that later on if we have time. But for now, I just want you to notice what's in the middle of all of this. Verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. Now, you might say, "Mm, that's not literal. That's just classic David. Look, I've read the Psalms. He's a hyperbolic, rhetorical kind of man. He wears his heart on his sleeve and everything is falling apart one moment. Next verse, he's praising God and singing from the hilltops. Bit of an emotional wreck. Now, I might agree with you there that this is him just being hyperbolic and it's not really talking about death. But for the fact that the whole description of death here isn't just any kind of death. This is a description of an execution. Look at the details around it. There's lots here. Let me just point one out. They stare and they gloat over me. This is public. They cast lots for clothing. That's what happened back then. Things were divided up and split out amongst the, spo- you know, the spoils of the soldiers doing the execution. Why would David put that kind of detail in here if he was just being hyperbolic about his sorry state because his son Absalom was chasing him through the hills? Okay, so maybe David wasn't being rhetorical. Maybe he was being literal. Like, can we pinpoint a time in David's life when he was publicly tried and executed? Now, we happen to know more about King David than we do from, I think, pretty much anyone at that time in antiquity which is not to say that we know a lot. We don't know much from people back then. Thousand years BC, things tend to get covered in the sands of time. But we have no evidence from all of the data that we have that David ever experienced anything like what we read here. And when you think about it, it wouldn't make any sense. I mean, when you read Kings and when you read Chronicles, when the kings were overthrown, and that happened quite often, they weren't trials and public spectacles. There was a coup and you went in and killed the king. Simple. So not only didn't this happen to David, it couldn't have happened to David. It just wouldn't have made any sense. But there's another factor, I think, that we are projecting beyond David's experience here to something else. And that is the third and final contrast. Just like the contrast between dereliction and celebration, Israel and all the nations, here we see another contrast in the middle of the psalm between death by execution and deliverance unto life. Look at this, verses 19 through 26. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. That is a about face. And I don't know about you, but it sounds like a resurrection. David says, deliver me from death in verse 22. Sounds like that happened. So back to our questions. What has happened to bring about the change from a cry of dereliction to a pronouncement of celebration? What has happened to bring about the extension of God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel, to the extension of his faithfulness through covenant to all of the nations, to the end of the earth? The answer, I think, is a death and a resurrection. And that's not mere speculation. Again, Acts chapter 2, this time we read Peter who says that David was a prophet who foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, Acts two thirty to 31. Jesus was forsaken on the cross. There was a resurrection. Now, how much was David aware of everything that he was saying here? Clearly, he's prophesying. I think he would have been aware that he was projecting beyond his own experiences. But at the end of the day, I don't know how much he knew that he was talking about the Christ here. But from these three contrasts, I think a good case can be made, and this is where I'm at today, that knowing the covenant promises that God made to Israel through the patriarchs, I think that what we have here is at least some awareness that when David spoke of his anguish... He had a view towards the the satisfaction or the fulfillment of his grievance in this promised descendant who would go through a greater suffering, a greater abandonment by God, and a greater deliverance that would lead to a greater kingdom than just Israel, the kind that we read about in Revelation, with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Okay, so that's looking at Psalm from Psalm 22 through to the cross. Let's turn around now. And let's look from the cross back to Psalm 22. In Matthew 27, we read these words. Now, from the sixth hour, that's about 12 p.m., there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, from the experience of David in Psalm 22, we look forward to the cross, considering three contrasts. Here, from the experience of Jesus in Matthew 27, I want us to look back now to Psalm 22, only this time, not through three contrasts, but through three realities that unfolded when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the first reality is infinite suffering. Now, we've wondered what may have been going through the head of David as he wrote Psalm 22 or as he sang Psalm 22. But have you ever wondered what was going through the head of Jesus as he carried his cross, as he was executed? Of course, we need to be careful here. We we aren't in the head of Jesus. But I think there are some clues in the Gospels that give us something. Have you ever noticed that during his trial, And on the way to Calvary, and even as he was nailed to the cross, all of the words that Jesus uttered were focused on other people. Luke 23, Jesus tells us that there were women who were mourning his crucifixion. Jesus looks at them and he says, Weep for yourselves and for your children for what is about to come. And then as Jesus is being crucified, what does he do? He prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then because one of the criminals crucified alongside him makes a shallow profession of faith, he turns to them and he says, today you will be with me in paradise, comforting him in his final moments. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks down and who does he see? His mother Mary and his disciple John. And to console them, he says, woman, here is your son. And to John... Son, here is your mother. He entrusts them to one another for their grief. Despite the fact that Jesus was the one going through the suffering, all of the things that Jesus said up to that point were focused on the needs of others, embodying what we read in Philippians 2, the mind of Christ that looks to the needs of others above your own. It's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm hurting, I can't think about anything other than my hurt. And if you dare be a grief thief and come and tell me about your woes and I'm going through stuff, I'll just, you won't be on my Christmas card list. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. That is until we read in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 27, that from the sixth hour, so in the middle of the day, An eerie darkness came over all of the land. And about the ninth hour, three hours later, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice in Aramaic, the language he spoke, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, this is first person now. He's not thinking about people. He's thinking about himself in relation to God. Like something's changed. What is it? We get a clue from the very cry itself. It's an interesting prayer. Up until this point in the Gospels, Jesus never said, my God, my God. He said, my Father. It was a familial reference, something that was deeply intimate. Now it is, my God, my God. It's like he's taken a step back from that familial intimacy. Now there seems to be like a distance, a separation, a fracturing of the fellowship that he had with God. Jesus has been forsaken. And looking back at Psalm 22, we can unpack more details of what that involved. right? And when you line up Psalm 22 with Matthew 27, you can just tabulate all of the things that line up together. Let me just mention one here because it may not be one that you've seen before. Psalm 22:12, 12. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Throughout the Old Testament, Bashan carried, it it was just a term loaded with theological baggage. It, It was basically the name for the gates of hell. If you wanted to conjure up images of the demonic in the minds of an ancient Jew, you talked about this place. And outside of the Bible, we have references to it. It referred to the place of the serpent. Now, there's a lot more to say on that. But the point I want to make here simply is that when Jesus is encircled by all of this stuff. There is a lot more going on than the physical. There is something deeply spiritual happening here. The suffering wasn't just a physical suffering. It was a physical suffering, but it wasn't just a physical suffering. If Jesus were crying out because of the physical pain, we should have expected him to be more inward focused from the moment he got arrested and abandoned by his friends and scourged and mocked and spat on, not to mention nailed to boards of wood. But I love what Tim Keller says in his book, King's Cross. Jesus didn't cry out, my head, my head, my feet, my feet, my friends, my friends, my hands, my hands. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a change in focus here from others to himself, because of what's going on spiritually. Now, think about it like this. I love my children. I wouldn't hesitate to endure physical suffering for them if I had to for some reason. If you want to hurt me, don't cut me, cut my children. That kind of relational suffering is far worse than anything you could do to my body. In fact, just this past Friday, so two days ago, I was chatting to a lady who hasn't heard from her son for 13 years. Uh, and he, he just wrote an email to her and then he left and she hasn't heard from him. And she said to me, David, in some ways, it's harder for me to process this separation than it is to, to process a death. Because she doesn't know where he is. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know if he's what state he's in. And this lady isn't saying that, you know, lightly. Because this young man emailed his mother just after his dad, so her husband died of cancer. So she knows what it is to process death. The loss of love is infinitely worse than some sort of physical loss. And if that's true for us as humans in our short lifespan, because of the relations that we build in time... How much more for Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who John one eighteen whose soul has been wrapped around the Father from all eternity. You see, just as our physical suffering is infinitely less than our relational suffering, so the loss of our human love is infinitely less than the triune love of God that exists from all eternity. The divinity of Jesus means that, unlike King David, unlike you and unlike me, his cry of dereliction is an infinite cry. Because just like earth that is made to revolve around the sun, because the sun gives it light and life to sustain it, so you and I were made to be in relationship ultimately with God who gives us light and love to sustain us. We were made to be in the presence of God. And when that is gone, all that is left is darkness and death. Jesus, on the cross, plunged into the absolute freezing eternal hell of darkness, experiencing an infinite unraveling of whatever kind of relationship he knew from all of eternity. It would have been so disorienting, so disintegrating and soul-destroying, that my words are just inadequate here as I try to understand it. A Scottish minister who died way beyond his years, Robert Murray McSheen, wrote this. He described it like this. Jesus was without God as if he had no God. Now, why did God forsake Jesus on the cross? Again, we already know the answer. Just like David's question in Psalm 22:1 was a rhetorical question, so this question here, raised by Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was a rhetorical question. David knew he was forsaken because God is holy. David was not. David was a worm. He was a sinner. He was unworthy. He was unfit to be in the presence of God. That's why he was forsaken. But when it comes to Jesus... The difference between David and Jesus is that while David was guilty in himself, Jesus was made guilty apart from himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. What this means then is that on the cross, Jesus experienced the reality of infinite suffering as a substitute. The cross is a tree of life for everyone because it was a tree of death for Jesus. This is why we can't understand Psalm 22 without understanding what happened on the cross because Christ clarifies the contrasts. Standing between dereliction and celebration, Israel and all the nations, death and deliverance unto life is the cross of Jesus Christ, his infinite sufferings, That is what brings about the transformation. And if we are to experience this transformation in our own lives here today, then we need to first and foremost face up to the reality that his cry of dereliction was a cry in our place. He suffered infinitely because of me, because of you. As we sung, Behold the man upon the cross, My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out amongst the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I know that it is finished. John 19, 30. Jesus cried out, Titelestai, it is finished. Psalm 22, 31. David ends by declaring, Ki asa. He has done it. When you and I suffer, we may find ourselves dizzied and disoriented in complete darkness. It may seem senseless to us, as senseless as whatever was going on for Jesus on the cross. Now, you and I may never know the reason why we go through whatever it is that we go through in life. But what the cross of Jesus Christ tells us, It isn't because God doesn't love us that we suffer. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, 1 John 3.16. So when trials come upon us, the temptation is to say, God has forsaken me and walk away. But we must remember in that moment, like David, that whatever it is that we're going through, does not arise from any failure in God. To the contrary, to the contrary, as David's very prayer in Psalm 22 is answered, our suffering is a testimony to the way that God answers prayers along with the forsaken one, Jesus Christ himself, in Matthew 27. God answered his prayer. Three days later, the tomb was empty. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you are holy, you are good, you are working in me an eternal weight of glory. And though I can't see it yet, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you because on the darkest day of human history, in the darkest hour of infinite suffering, when all seemed lost, you, O God, were doing a work in Christ, reconciling the world to yourself, Paul says. Just maybe he's doing something in your life, hey? In the words of Michael Green, late theologian from the UK, Jesus' cry on the cross means for Christians there is a future for suffering. Suffering ultimately is not blind, wanton, and senseless. It has a purpose. Look what Jesus' suffering produced. Look what benefits flowed from the awesome suffering gladly endured. It is the same as Jesus' followers. Mystery though it is, much flows from it when it is gladly endured. Character is formed by it. Art and creativity is stimulated by it. Just look at the Compassion and care are invoked by it. Royalty comes forth from it. Jesus was real on the cross in his suffering. And in the greatest mystery of all, we read, this affliction, which is only for a moment, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You do not get a suffering God in any other worldview. You definitely don't get a God who cries about his suffering in any other worldview. Like, why am I a Christian? It's because of this. right? Jesus is the only God with scars on his hands. That tells me, in the very least, that he has something to say about the biggest question people are asking around our world and have asked as long as there's been human history, namely suffering. The good news of the gospel says his death means that there is no death for us. His resurrection is our resurrection. That's reality number one. Reality number two, perfect obedience. Recall that when David wrote of his experiences in Psalm 22 that he cried out to the Lord, he appealed to the covenantal promises God made with the patriarchs. In the same way, Jesus' God-forsaken cry of dereliction was a cry of covenantal faithfulness. Again, my God, my God. This is the language of Old Testament covenants, where God said to Israel, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. So while on the surface it might sound like Jesus is walking away from God, that he's no longer trusting in him in his greatest hour of need, the reality is just the opposite. Like David, Jesus had faith in God's covenant promises and it is on that basis that he now pleads for mercy. But here's the thing. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night when Jesus was arrested? He was so stressed, so anxious that he sweat drops of blood knowing what he was about to endure. But what did he say? Matthew 26, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. Perfect obedience. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. He prayed that he didn't have to. He pledged himself, however, to the Father and his will. He was bound in covenant. And when you realize that that's what we're called to do in marriages, you start to see how big a moment something like marriage is. It wasn't a consumer transaction. He didn't try and sell us something. He didn't get anything for it. It cost him everything. But it was in keeping with God's covenant relationship with his people. And that is perfect obedience. It's a far cry from this idea of love in the heart that doesn't need to validate itself in any sort of external means. Because this is a choice committed against all contrary feelings and thoughts. So in the midst of the hell of the cross... As Jesus cried out, my God, my God, yes, it was less familial, but it was still covenantal. And in that perfect obedience, Jesus was demonstrating his love of the Father, which makes this cry all the more heart aching, gut wrenching, because John 14:31, Jesus said, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. His perfect obedience is a demonstration of his love of God. And in that moment, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, appealing to the covenant, he was basically saying, I love you, God, what's going on? Do you see the layers of this? Not only did Jesus infinitely suffer by dying the death we should have died, he also perfectly obeyed by living the life we should have lived. We are made right with God. Here's what this means. If you believe in Jesus, when God looks upon you right now, like name yourself in the pew right now, when God looks upon you, he sees Jesus' perfect obedience in your seat He sees his rightness on you. It's not that you just get a get-out-of-jail-free card. You are literally elevated to the obedience of God, which therefore gives you the right to go to him in prayer, to walk into his court standing on your feet. His perfect obedience Changes you. It must change you. Otherwise, I just don't know if you get it. Like, I have to challenge myself with this all the time, okay? Just like the contrast in Psalm 22, there is a transformation taking place here from dereliction to celebration unfolding in your life, from a concern for yourself and your tribe to a global concern for all the nations, which gives you confidence to not be ashamed of the gospel when you go into work, when you go to home and your families, when you go down the road, whatever it is that you do, and the places and spaces God has you. There is this transformation from death ultimately to life. Jesus, the good shepherd, saves us from the penalty of sin so that we can enjoy a right relationship with him. Reality number three, eternal life. I'm going to cut this one short. Let me just say this. The cry of Jesus on the cross forces you, it must force you, to see that if you believe in him, his suffering And his righteousness is in place of your own. And so just as David says of himself, as he was laid in the dust of death, so we must die to ourselves if that is to be true of us. Because only with the death can there be a resurrection to new and eternal life. And you can hope in that. As David says, the Lord has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried out to him, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, God will not despise. That is all he asks. It's not something you do one day when you, when you get right with Jesus. It's something we must be doing daily. So take hope, because at the end of all of this, the father heard the God forsaken cry. And just as he delivered Jesus from the grave, so he promises to deliver all who put their trust in him, that we may sing with David. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. So there it is, Psalm 22 in two very quick directions. The Psalm of the Cross that paints a portrait of Jesus, our Good Shepherd. John 10, 11. I am the Good Shepherd, said Jesus. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 2024. For your wisdom, uh, for your love in sending Jesus, our good shepherd, to save us from death. Lord, who is there among the pantheon of would-be gods like you? Who is there that not only tastes the dust of death, but cries out about it? There is none. So as many questions as I have, Lord, I don't know where else I'm going to ever go. Lord, we praise you for your delight to save sinners. And because of that, Lord, we know that evil is a passing thing. It's a shadow. And so to the day uh, when that last trump shall sound and death will be no more, Lord, we pray, come. Come and make everything right. Make everything sad come untrue. Satisfy the afflicted. Turn dereliction to celebration. The kingship belongs to you, the ruler of the nations. And until that day, Father, we just ask that you would teach us the joy of your glory, which endured the cross, scorning its shame. Help us to live in the light of the resurrection and learn the joyful dance of your grace. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.